The Network Live. News, insights, and stories right here on KNEL 95.3 FM and KNELradio.com every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. Don't miss this opportunity to hear world news, insights, and stories from guests around the world. The Network Live is your pathway to connecting people and ministries. Do you have a favorite picture of you and your sweetie? Well, Valentine's Day is almost here, and in honor of Valentine's Day this year, KNEL is having the second annual Cutest Couple Photo Contest. That's right, the second annual Cutest Couple Photo Contest. So search through your photos and pick out your cutest couple photo and submit it to KNEL before February 9th, and you could be a winner. The cutest couple will win a romantic Terlingua Ghost Town getaway, which includes accommodations from Big Ben Holiday Hotel and a romantic dinner at the Starlight Theater and Restaurant, a bouquet of Valentine flowers from Heritage Flower Shop, his and her haircut style and pedicure by Mandy's Hair Store, and a romantic Valentine goodie basket from At Home with Debbie Rule. Submit your photo today at knelradio.com. Go to Contest, Cutest Couple Submissions Form, and you could be the winner. We'll be announcing the winner on Friday, February 11th during the morning show. Good morning and welcome to the Network Live. I'm your host, Debbie Rule. Today we'll be hearing a message from Lance Walnow, what you need to know spiritually about the times we're living in. I hope you enjoy this message today from Dr. Lance Walnow. And remember to join me tonight at 6 p.m. for At Home with Debbie Rule, where we'll be concluding our series on new in 2022. I look forward to being with you tonight at 6 o'clock right here on 95.3 FM and knelradio.com. Now, Dr. Lance Walnow. Part of what I've been saying is that uh, for years is that these seven mountains that I talk about, which we're now seeing more clearly than ever, the mountain of government, the mountain of media, the mountain of education, the mountain of business, that these structures are going to come under intense bombardment by hell to acquire the gates at the top of these institutions in order for hell to, in a sense, legislate uh, the compliance and conformity of nations into an end-time system that is the merger of economics and a different religious kind of uh, sentiment or a new religion, and then the government coming in as the apparatus of organizing and dominating that structure. In the midst of that, I also believe that there is a call for nations, that nations don't have to surrender to this, this end-time conspiracy. You know, the, the Antichrist certainly arises, and there should be a great deal of interest now in where and how does the Bible describe these things taking place. But even as the Antichrist arises, remember, he is uh, going forth to war and going forth to war. He's, in, he's, he's either seducing the world by peace or he's at war with opposition. But where's that opposition coming from? Obviously, everybody isn't complying. And it's that resistance that I want to talk to you about because the church has had a long period of time in the West of peace, but now we're coming to a period of time where we're almost sympathetically entering into the period of the Reformation when men like Luther and Zwingli and uh, John Knox and, and various others had to stand up in the face of government and economics and media and speak the word. Remember, preach the word when it's convenient and when it's not convenient. And sometimes it involves reproving and rebuking um, the, uh, the structures because they're out of alignment with what God wants. It's going to be a great day, actually, because the last days is when God pours out his spirit on all flesh, and we can expect increased grace, 
which is divine enablement, increased strength and increased insight. In fact, I'll show you in these, in these Bible studies that we're living exactly in the time period when God is opening the book. We're living in the feast of the open book. If there's one thing that uh, is contrasting so powerfully with this generation that resists sound doctrine, it's the revelation of the fact that the book is about to be open and is indeed opening now in a way that's revealing God's end time plan. Daniel said something that has always struck me as being underpreached and overwhelming in its implication. Daniel said uh, to Gabriel, as he was seeing the insight for our generation. He said, uh, uh, explain to me exactly what it is that I'm writing. He was writing it by inspiration, but he could not penetrate the veil fully of what, of what, he, what was implied by his own prophetic pen. And the angel says, seal up the book, Daniel, for it is going to be sealed until the time of the end. Men will run to and fro, knowledge will increase. You get the idea of technology allowing us to go anywhere, information uh, on a computer in your hand, being able to, to fathom the depths of things that took uh, that no one else could ever calculate before. Knowledge has increased, transportation has increased, but now the knowledge and transportation into heavenly places and insight into the design of God is opening up. What a sad time to have itching ears because we really now can hear things that have been kept secret from the beginning, which are revealed to us. Which leads me to something else. I discovered that the, a lot of the unfolding of the mysteries of what's about to be revealed are actually in the Old Testament. There are so many prophets that prophesied of, of things pertaining to the last days that uh, are hidden within the scriptures that are going to be opened up and indeed are opening up right now. In fact, the period of time that we're in, which is the time of of the, uh, I've said, the time of the Cyrus leaders emerging. These are the individuals that God raises up within the secular arena in government, which are actually an answer to the prayer of God's people. Now, we always think that the person God's going to use is going to be the preacher or the Christian, uh, but I would suggest to you that history tells us that Cyrus was raised up as a Persian, not a Jew, and in Isaiah 45, the Lord said, thus says the Lord to Cyrus, whom I've anointed. I've anointed you to go through the two leaf gates of Babylon to break things up for the sake of my people, and uh, even though you have not known me. And I realized when I read that, that a new era was upon us, that the battle of nations is also going to involve God hearing the prayers of his people and raising up vessels of deliverance, and we must be discerning because a Victor Orban in Hungary or a Bolsonaro in Brazil or a Donald Trump in the United States isn't coming through the comfortable church gate. But you have to discern who they are. You have to look at a Lincoln in, during the Second World War who was a big disappointment to the revivalists like Charles Finney because he wasn't even aligned with any particular church. And here you got revivalists saying, well, how can we possibly be delivered by a guy who isn't even going to church? Well, would you say that Lincoln was used decisively in the crises in American history? Of course you do. And in many ways, uh, Lincoln uh, had a more profound depth of spiritual humility than some of the right, self-righteous preachers that rejected him. Churchill was the same way, a vessel uniquely raised up. And it's the Cyrus types that fascinate me. In fact, it's the period of time that Cyrus emerged and this idea of um, the battle of nations. Now, there's a lot of Christians that have no faith 
for national salvation. They don't even see, sadly, that nations are designed by God, that God created nations. When Paul was uh, preaching in Athens, I believe it was, in the book of Acts, he's the one who said, let's see what we can find. And get your Bible when we're doing this, by the way. If you don't have a Bible, stop this recording and go get one and get a pen. I got this thing all marked up. I got a couple of Bibles marked up. <laughs> and it's because, you know, I always want to hear what, uh, what the Spirit's saying right now. So, and I always read with the expectation that God's going to say something. So when Paul gets to Athens, he's preaching on, on Mars Hill. And, uh, and he says something which is, which is, to me, a great insight into the last day's battle of nations. And he says in verse 26 that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of all the earth. Catch that. God made from one man or God made from one blood all the nations, which tells you how absurd it is to be living in a time when there's so much effort made to divide people from each other. When in fact, we all have one blood, the pigment of our skin uh, is diverse, but the blood that we have is global. We all have one blood because we all came from one source. And it says here that God determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. God determined the times for nations. He determined the times for the empires. He determined when they begin and when they end, and he gave them their physical geography. And then it says, Paul says, in order that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. In other words, you could see that, uh, that history, you can see nations having their time where they rise and then you see them fall. But Paul says their boundaries, both physical and their time period of, uh, of significance, can be affected by their seeking of God. And that is a great promise because it means that if a nation is in decline, as our country is in, if, we're, if it looks as though our boundaries are broken, you look at our southern border being gutted open and the whole world being invited to, to come in, when you see boundaries collapsing and you, and you see the, the, uh, the descent of a great nation, there is the promise that if perhaps the people, the nation would grope. It's the idea of somebody reaching out in the dark almost to try to find out what God is saying. And if they would do that and find him, then they can have an extension of their peace, an extension of their strength. And I believe that it's particularly God's will that there be nations on the earth that when Jesus returns, you see them gathered together and they're categorized uh, in two ways. There's sheep nations and goat nations. And people will debate that because they have a predisposition towards defeat, I think. They can't imagine a single nation that would, be, that would be a sheep nation. But yet when Jesus comes back, he separates the nations. And if you read closely the criterion of that separation, Jesus says, you know, uh, he puts the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And he says he welcomes the sheep into the kingdom or those, those, uh, those nations go into the, uh, into the millennium or into the next season of the kingdom. And the, and the question is, as much as you've done to the least of these, my people, you've done unto me, which suggests that the defining issue between nations that are part of the beast system of empire 
and those sheep nations that put up a spirited resistance uh, in the last days is how they treat the brethren of Jesus. So how do I know that uh, we're talking about the brethren of Jesus? Because the language is clear. As much as you've done to the least of these, my brethren. And I asked the Lord, well, who are the brethren? Certainly it would seem the Jewish people and Israel. Because Israel, as you know, is a, is a particular test for all the nations. How they handle Israel. You could see when Spain was a great global empire, the moment they stretched out their hands to persecute the Jews, they, they ended as an empire. The Dutch were the same in Holland. The moment that they persecuted the Jews, the era of the great dominance of the, of, uh, the Dutch fleets and merchants ended. When the Great Britain, this small island nation that literally ruled the world, uh, when they had turned their back on the Jews and they, and they, and they had injured Israel uh, and became divided in some were for and some were against, what happened was the British Empire went from being the, uh, the, the power of the seas to literally becoming a broken nation in the, in the end of World War II. And now the United States, so many Christians are anxious about uh, what would happen if we were to turn our back on Israel. Well, it could be that the grace of God that is working on our behalf right now is the fact that we have not done that. And that if anything, uh, with Donald Trump recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and recognizing Israel as a nation state, remember this, the United Nations went and had a vote. And it's a shocking revelation to see that only seven nations stood with Israel's right to exist with its capital in Jerusalem. In spite of all this history of the Bible, they, the, the world, with the exception of seven nations, uh, or eight nations, uh, would not acknowledge the right of Israel to exist but, and, and have their capital in Jerusalem, which is to say Israel's right to exist with its capital in Jerusalem. Guatemala stood with the Lord. United States stood and various Micronesia, Toga. It'd be interesting to look at these minor nations and island states, basically, to see how they're faring, because the world itself uh, will turn its back on the Jew and will turn its back upon Israel, uh, according to what the scriptures say. But uh, woe to that nation that does so, because we can see in history the collapse of empires and great nations the moment that they betray the covenant of God with his people and interfere with God's purpose for Israel. So there's a grace, I believe, that is in the United States to help us grope after God and find him because we do stand, I think, in, on good ground on this verse, as much as you've done to the least of these, my brethren, you've done to me. And that refers, I believe, to the Jew and to Israel. But in the scripture, if you study in Luke and in Mark, who does Jesus stretch his hands out to and describe as his brethren? There was one time when he was teaching and there was a knock at the door and, and they interrupted him while he was talking and saying, Master, your mother and your brethren, your brothers, are outside and want to talk to you. And Jesus said, wait a second, who is my mother and who are my brethren? And stretching his hands to his disciples, he said, behold my mother and behold my brethren. Whoever hears the word of God and keeps it, that's my mother, that's my brother. At which point he probably concluded that part and went and talk to his mother <laughs> because he had a relationship with his mother that was, that was that kind of relationship, that kind of closeness. But the point he wanted to make publicly was his brethren aren't defined only by, by family, lineage, or being uh, Jews. 
but they were the disciples. That tells me that sheep nations are not going to be willingly molesting, harassing, and attacking religious liberty for Christians. That's important to remember, because when you see a country shutting down churches, persecuting pastors, editing what is preached, locking up uh, leaders, you're seeing the convergence or the, the transition of a nation from a sheep nation, such as Canada's experiencing, into a goat nation. And at the same time, I believe that there are nations in the earth that are goat nations that may surprise you as they will actually rise up and become protectors of God's people and will not, not cooperate with the persecution of Jews. And, and we saw that in the Second World War, even with Hitler in Europe, that there were, uh, that there were those that were sympathetic with the Jews and, and that when Hitler was annihilated and taken out of power, it was uh, those, those people in Europe and those nations uh, that actually went on uh, to prosper. So let's, uh, let's take a look at the Word of God as it applies to this period of time. This, this period of time that we're in right now is, I believe, a pattern in the Bible that is being opened. And it starts, I think, with the Cyrus Revelation. Let's take a look at this because the patterns of, of timing in the Bible, there's numerous um, templates that God gives us so that that day should not take us unaware. There's the, the feasts of Israel, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, which sets the time period of God's visitations in the earth. Passover was the crucifixion of Jesus. Pentecost was the uh, celebration of the uh, harvest 40 days after, 50 days after Passover, boom, and that was Pentecost. And so you see God uses the feasts in Israel for the setting up of time periods and templates. And so we are now stepping into the great outpouring of tabernacles. All this stuff is there. You have the, uh, you have the, the seven days of history, which is a year is as a thousand, a day is as a thousand years, a thousand years is as a day. And if you break up from Adam to Abraham, and uh, you know, from Abraham to Moses, from Moses uh, to Jesus, from Jesus to our present day, you'll see that there's a 6,000-year Bible span of history. That is, that is, you could break it up and you could literally see the years are written. And so you have that 6,000 years or six days of history, and history is rolling towards that sixth concluding day. And then there's the seventh day, which is the day of the Lord. History is wrapping up. And you might remember this interesting experience where a demon was manifesting uh, as Jesus crossed over into the land of the Gadarenes, and the demons manifested, and they said, we know who you are, Jesus, uh, the Son of the Most High God. Have you come to torment us before the time? Now, there's an interesting verse. Have you come to torment us before the time? Tells you that all of hell knows that there's an ultimate judgment that God himself is going to do it, that Jesus is going to be the one that executes that judgment. But Jesus showed up to their thinking before time. He showed up on, we'll find out, 4,000 years into the recorded history book of Adam to Jesus in terms of Bible chronology. 4,000 years. That's the fourth day of the week. Jesus showed up on the fourth day. What day did they expect him? the sixth day, the day you're in right now. Have you come to torment us before the appointed time? We're living in the time when, when there's a different disposition of Jesus that's going to be released on the earth. 
and it's the disposition of, of the warrior. We've known him as the lamb, but now we're discovering that the lamb is also a lion and that God's shaking of nations is the kingdom coming down upon the earth, creating instability because God himself with the kingdom is coming back to earth at the end of the six days. So let's go over here to the board for a second. And so I'm going to give you the chronology of where we are, another template that has to do with the opening of the books that involves the Cyrus phenomena. Let's take a look at that. So we come around to um, the, the people of Israel, the Jews, had experienced around 600 B.C., uh, they experienced the devastation of the judgment of Nebuchadnezzar coming to Jerusalem, tearing down the walls and uh, plundering and destroying the temple and taking the children of Israel to Babylon. That's where Daniel and Esther and Nehemiah and, and, and Ezra and a whole class of vessels of God that were really hundred, you know, we would say they're hundredfold vessels. They were, they, were the, they were great, but they were subject to the conditions of adversity because their nation had disobeyed God. So uh, 600 uh, B.C. is when, is when Babylon comes in and invades Jerusalem. But then the Lord prophesied through Jeremiah the prophet, hey, it's going to be 70 years uh, in Babylon, and then God's going to deliver you. So God's always had prophets that have time periods to help give comfort. And of course, that deliverance comes when God raises up Cyrus. And so we have the Babylonian uh, era here. And of course, the, the whole story is that, remember that, that night when they have the, uh, they're praising the vessels and the gods of this gods and those gods of Babylon. And while they were praising their gods, and drinking out of the sacred goblets and vessels of the temple, the finger of God wrote on the wall and basically said, your time period has ended. I've been weighing you and it's judgment now. Boom, basically what the finger of God wrote. And that was the night that Cyrus, boom, came into Babylon. Curiously enough, Cyrus was prophesied by Isaiah 120 years before he was born. He was called by name, and we have the Dead Sea Scrolls dates the prophecies of Isaiah, proving that this prophet was 120 years ahead of time, which is a curious conundrum because he couldn't be proved to be right or wrong because it was going to be fulfilled 120 years later. But he indeed had called Cyrus by name. So Cyrus comes along, and let's see, that would be, I'm um, thinking around, uh, well, around 538 B.C., Cyrus makes the decree, this great decree that uh, all the Jews can leave where they are and they can begin to rebuild their temple. And so from the Babylonian judgment with Nebuchadnezzar to Cyrus, we have this transition where a decree goes forth. This is a big deal in the Bible. It's written about in Ezra. It's written about in Jeremiah. This decree is like, an end to the judgment, and now a beginning of a new era. And in this period of time, Zerubbabel comes along, and his task is to build the house of God, to restore the, the house of God or the temple of God, and to put it back up uh, in, in, its, in its order as the epicenter of God's new phase of governing the earth. 
And so the house of God must be built. Cyrus gives the decree. It takes about two years before the Jews get themselves organized, and then they take off and they go and they answer that, uh, that decree. And uh, they move down like around 536 B.C. We've got different scholars put different dates on it. But 538 decree, 536 they go. But when they get there, they get preoccupied with building their own houses, planting their own gardens, their own vineyards. And, and they get so caught up there for like 16 years. They're doing their own thing that the Lord has to send a prophet to shake them up. And an economic crisis hit, a plague hit. They got locked up in a plague. They got, their economy went down. And the prophet said, it's because you're building your enterprise, you're not building mine. And so the house of God was kind of like put on hold, but then it was made a priority again. And sure enough, by what was it, like around, um, I'd say like by, five, uh, by 520 B.C., we have the house of God built. And uh, following that comes Nehemiah. And this is important you catch this, because these characters, Cyrus and Zerubbabel, who led that uh, group back, and the prophet Haggai, and the prophet Zechariah. This is where these, it's important to know the chronology because these are templates for our day. You have the house of God as the main project, and then you have the gates and the walls of the city because the temple is going to be vulnerable unless there are boundaries put around the nation itself. And that means that the gates of influence, the gates that come in and go out, and this is all highly symbolic. Obviously, the house of God refers to the church. Cyrus refers to rulers that come for the sake of the church. And then the gates and the walls refers to the boundaries of the nation and the ability to bind the work of the gates of hell that try to destroy the walls and boundaries of the nation. Why this is important here is because when Nehemiah comes along and does his work as a governor... Ezra comes along with him and does his work as a priest. And we see something now, a pattern. We see that government works with the house of God. And we've created a bizarre world where we're disengaged from government, but government belongs to God. The Bible says that the government eventually is on Jesus's shoulders. And last I looked, the shoulders are part of the body of Christ and the head is Jesus, that we're supposed to be working in our own nation, and government is part of what we influence. The gates and the walls uh, were restored by Nehemiah, and I guess that would be like around, uh, I'm thinking around 475 B.C. is when that takes place. And, and when that is done, then you have Jesus returns into that city. He goes into the city, into the temple, into into the fulfillment of what God had started with Cyrus. And during this period of time, and this is the part that is so powerful, when the Jews decided they were going to do what God wanted and be the church they were called to be and connect together and take the battle to the gates and restore the walls, it is during this time that they have awakening. So when you hear uh, all the talk about a third great awakening and we're all looking for some kind of a spiritual move, Understand the template, that God gives you leaders, that leaders open up the door for the project that God has, which is his people. And what comes in when the house of God is there? What comes in when the gates and the walls are being restored and the nation is able to be, in a sense, uh, 
redefine is you have the awakening and the awakening leads to harvest. So you're going to have harvest coming in throughout the whole time of the awakening. Interesting, interesting point is that Cyrus gives the decree, but after Cyrus comes a series of rulers, which is kind of like what we have now, that actually were uh, bad rulers. They were against the building project. And uh, the Lord had to uh, literally move through rulers until he started lining up his people with leadership that actually would get behind the project that God had the freedom of God's people, to build the house, to restore the gates and the walls. And so we can believe that God is going to raise up leaders and he's going to raise up Nehemiahs and Ezra's and Zerubbabel's and Haggai's. And I'm telling you, he's going to raise up Cyrus's. This is a template for where we are now. Where are we now? I'd say that we're at the period of time where God is building his house and at the same time that he's mobilizing his church to be able to go up against the gates of hell in order to save a nation, to see the, the nation, the United States, and various other countries that are hearing me right now be sheep nations, not goat nations. This is what I believe is taking place. The Network Live will be back next week at 10 a.m. right here on KNEO Radio 95.3 FM and KNEOradio.com. I'm Debbie Rule. Thank you for listening today.